guys, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We are from the band Phil Graves, and we're back to talk about cinema. Yeah, it's been a while, man. Hope you enjoyed the episode we recorded a few weeks back with uh, our homie Darrell. Yeah, I guess we're going for another sort of themed episode today. Absolutely. To a certain extent. Spurred on by the release of David Michaud's uh, The King mm-hmm. by our corporate overlords Netflix, we've watched some other classic adaptations of the same source material, uh, Lawrence Olivia's 1944 version of Henry V and Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight from 1965. We're going to compare and contrast the Netflix film to these two uh, classics. Yeah. I'm looking forward let's to see it. How, let's see how it holds up. I guess to excuse our absence, because I know you've been uh, waiting patiently, at least one person's been like, where the fuck is the new film Graves? Yeah, I know. It's, it has been a bit of a shocking wait. People are like, release the new film Graves or I'm going to kill myself like ASAP tonight. But yeah, I was in America. You went to Amsterdam. Yeah, I was in Holland. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't actually make it to the cinema, man. I was really annoyed. They were playing Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a couple of screenings of English subtitles. Mm. I did manage to go to see... Uh, the exhibition about Andrei Tarkovsky. That's fucking um, sick. Which was really cool. We spoke about the Kubrick exhibition, maybe even back on our first episode. It was, yeah. The structure of this one was basically a huge dark space with big screens, often next to each other. So you'd be looking at a sort of triptych of screens, just showing clips from his filmography. All seven of his films? Yeah. Like next to each other, indiscriminately. No, maybe not actually. I think the triptych was um, for Andre Rublev. Great. I think for Stalker they had like two screens next to each other. Mm-hmm. I think it really, it really did foreground the films themselves. The ephemera, which made up the other part of it, was obviously all in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> um, these correspondences. There was a correspondence from Kurosawa to Tarkovsky, who uh, had been translated into French in like you know contemporaneously in in like some hand and post it to him but that's about as good as it got for it yeah that's interesting though i guess for such a visual filmmaker you know you don't remember the the dialogue i love the dialogue in most of his films but it's not really the most memorable thing about it so i guess yeah because the thing i appreciated the most about the kubrick exhibition was the uh just getting to watch the best bits from the films you know like the youtube highlights reels or whatever on these nice screens these were bigger screens you were saying yes definitely they weren't like little tvs built into the walls they were big although there were some of those showing um sort of documentary films about him and that was interesting um oh, yeah. i think some of those had english subtitles there's the documentary film about the making of nostalgia that's really yes really there was so a lot of it it really was about like the sort of making of the films mm. and the films themselves as works works of art right and then the, the, I don't think there are any sort of posters, for example, or much concept work. Right. Some of those Russian, like Stalker and Solaris posters are insane. As well. Yeah, I know, man. I Maybe that, that would cheapen it, though, if it's about the artist as opposed to the, about the promotion. Yeah, and it very much so was about him as an artist mm. and his films as artworks. One of the most interesting things that I saw there was um, a photograph of his mum, mm. right, in the... Um, Did she look like the mum from Mirror? Yeah, so they had the still from um, Mirror next to it, and it was the exact same, right? And it just really stressed the extent to which um, he drew on memory to inform his art. Mm. And I thought that that was conveyed really well. And that was one of my main takeaways, really. Just he's like, yeah. He's a great man, great filmmaker. Rest in peace. Mm. Maybe my favourite filmmaker. Mm. Jealousy got to see it. 
Yeah, I'm sad that I didn't get to see any of the screenings. I think it's still going on. They were playing Diary of a Country Priest um, and Nazarene while we were yes. there. Yes. Um, as part of like a season of films, you know, were influencing his his work, you know, yeah. I guess like... Oh, okay. Because um, those were both in his top 10 favourite films, I think, or whatever. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I can't remember what else he had in there, but good films, you know. A very official, I think Persona, maybe. Really, I'd recommend, especially if you're interested in, I guess, him as an artist, like it really... It's good. And you can catch some of these films. Dutch listeners or listeners who can easily get over to the Netherlands. Just do it. And when you go there, don't just smoke weed. Eat too many edibles and you're like, oh, damn, this first one isn't really working. I'm going to have another one. (laughs) Oh, my trip to Amsterdam was really fucked, you know. I had a really bad time. But go see the Tarkovsky exhibition. Would you say the cinema scene in Holland was pretty blessed then for English speakers? Yeah, as I said. For um, non-assimilated expats. Yeah, exactly. Um... As I said, there are a few screenings of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a French film. This um, Celine Sion, she made Girlhood, which is sick. That was at the film festival, and like it's it's out there. There are a few screenings, and there are lots of interesting-looking indie cinemas. Mm. When I was looking at the so the exhibition is at the I Film Museum, which is sort of like their film archive and their Cinematheque Dutch Film Institute. Basically, they got all the, I think is the Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> Soldier of Orange stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's a cool building. It's on the north side. You have to get like a little shuttle ferry across the Hell yeah. the eye to get there. The river. Yeah, really. I think that's uh that's all there is to say about this shit. Check it out. That's fantastic. Yeah. I didn't really get to do much. Uh, I was really wanting to go to the Museum of the Moving Image when I was in New York. Um, Jim Henson. The yeah, novels. yeah, yeah. It's like a permanent exhibition of all his shit. Uh, was... The Museum of what not? The Museum of the Moving Image. Compared to the last time I was over there in August. They've reopened the moment now, so they was and there you, they have brilliant programming, and you can go see films just there for free if you buy a ticket. And I was mostly watching new releases over there. I did go see Satan Tango. We'll talk about that later. May have to do a whole episode on it, to be honest. Yeah, I think so. Seven and a half hour commentary. Like this scene's really wavy because he doesn't edit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait. It's the best. You I saw did. loads of films, man. I did. I watched a lot on uh, Criterion Channel. Shout out my man Godfrey. Very inspirational, especially as Disney Plus was launching and everyone was talking about how shit their catalogue was. I was like, yeah, in America you got Criterion Channel is literally the sickest. They got every film by Renoir pretty much, you know, like, it was mad. Yeah, I'm very jealous, man. I did go see Jonas Mikas's last film. It's called Requiem and it was kind of his style. Wait, who was that? Jonas Mikas was the guy who opened the anthology film archives. He was a, I think he's Lithuanian, but he moved to New York in like the 50s and he was a big promoter of experimental film. Uh, he put on lots of screenings and galleries before he opened the Anthology Film Archive and he also wrote a lot about film and made a lot of beautiful films. I guess you could liken him to someone in Europe like Agnes Varda or someone like that in terms of her like 21st century work is all like handheld camera, a lot about nature. This film Requiem didn't have any... Uh, when was that one made? He died about two months ago, so this was his last film, and it's mostly just shots of flowers, soundtrack by Verdi's Requiem. It was screened on a very, very big screen the day it came out. It sounds like a crazy experience, man. Yeah, I mean, in true Jonas Mika's fashion, the projector broke a couple of times while it was uh, screening, but it was on a pretty big, big screen. It's cool to hear Verdi's Requiem played out loud. And uh, yeah, it was really moving, beautiful, sad. I saw The Irishman the day after, so I was, it was pretty, like, a morbid death mode, you know. But yeah, that was at The Shed. Kind of a weird place, but R.I.P. Jonas. Um, hopefully there'll be a London screening of Requiem. 
worth seeing. Yeah, I'm down. Anything else you saw there? I did get to see Uncut Gems, The Lighthouse, saw that three times, Parasite, and I had like two weeks of being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen The Irishman, it's really sick, you guys need to watch. <laughs> I just wanted to talk briefly about the new issue of Sight and Sound, if that's cool. Maybe my favourite writer for the magazine in the years of my readership, Hannah McGill, has written a brilliant 12-pager about Eyes Wide Shut, the documentary by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Unbelievably relevant. Me and Steph watched it on Saturday night after the uh, Prince Andrew Newsnight interview came out because I felt I watched it when I was like a lot younger and didn't really understand it at all. And I feel like when I watch it, if I'm like 40 or still, it'll be like a completely different film again. But interesting for Science Sound to having just got a new editor, their second issue. And they've kind of switched up quite a few things about the magazine compared to how it was with Nick James. Well, no, they did. They had uh, John Crawford and they had Barbara Stanwyck on the cover both last year, which is pretty sick. Especially in November, when there's so yeah. many big films coming out. Yeah, we really are getting to the point where every film we see now, we're like... Oscar pick. Film of the year, you know? <laughs> it's a pretty interesting article. The film that was pretty maligned at the time, not really appreciated, but it's really grown in stature over the last 20 years. What's like the that. article's take? Is it just like a... A lot of it is about talking about Jeffrey Epstein and stuff like that. And What she said, I'm not going to spoil the whole article, but what she did say in the intro, which I found really interesting, was talking about how... Stanley Kubrick has become like one of the most iconic and like worshipped like historical filmmakers of the 21st century and she was likening that even though he wasn't really loved by like film critics at the time really or like aestheticists that much likening that to the way that sort of tech innovators are celebrated more than artists in the 21st century and how Stanley Kubrick's like precise and like methodical filmmaking and his like real like cathedral-esque films perfect for that as opposed to someone like Jacques Rivette but yeah good article Good film. Eyes Wide Shut is going to be reissued for its 20th anniversary next week around the country. So if you haven't seen it before, or if you have, I feel like it's probably the sort of film that's different every time you watch it. And it's great. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman both killed it. You should watch it. Watch it in the cinema. Yeah, I yeah, I think I will. It's an interesting film because like Tom Cruise didn't make any Ota films after that. Mm. And Nicole Kidman pretty much exclusively did. What, with like Gus Van Sant? And... Yeah, I'm talking Dogville, Birth, like... Nah. Oh, you should is watch really that good? shit, dude. I mean, that's even more sort of like... He made uh, Sexy Beast. And Under and the Skin. Under the Skin. This both, is, both real classic. This is his only other film. Another huge flop at the time. It's about like Nicole Kidman plays this woman. Her husband dies in like tragic circumstances and she's really grief stricken. And then this like 12 year old boy turns up on your doorstep and is like, honey, I'm home. And she's like, oh yeah, I guess you are my husband. And then just like, da da da. And everyone's like, are you crazy? Like how this is like a child, you know? Like Interesting film. Uh, is it in, set in Britain? No, it's set in like the same sort of setting as uh, mm. Eyes Wide Shut, like super townhouse, Manhattan. Shout out Kidman. I think we're going to get into it. Yeah. Now. I think so, If man. you're ready, listeners. Anything else you'd like to... Uh, Hanukkah and Alan Renee on Mubi. Sick. We'll do a whole episode about Hanukkah one day. Yeah, 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 that's coming up. Okay, let's do it.
well, when I read about The King before it came out, I was uh, I was interested, you know? Yeah. I was down. Timothy Chalamet, yeah. Robert Pattinson. Yeah. I'm seeing these promotional stills. I'm thinking, you know, they've they've got the costume budget. <laughs> they've got the reference pics. Yeah. Yeah, they've got the Pinterest. But they didn't employ the script supervisor. No. Or the music supervisor. Or, I don't know. They had a good location scout. Yeah. Did you see Outlaw King? No, I didn't. That's the one about Robert the Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. It looked pretty interchangeable with this film. It had pretty much exactly the same release. London Film Festival, Netflix. Yeah. This film sucks. Yeah, I hated it. It's an adaptation of Shakespeare's Henry Ad, Henry IV, Part 1 and 2, and Henry V. Mm. A loose adaptation. Yeah, so following the young not yet Henry V, Prince Hal, from his, you know, ratchet lifestyle in a London inn to, you know, the victorious battlefield of Agincourt. It starts out, it's like uh, Gus Van Sant's last days, you know, this guy's just staring at the, the wall or whatever. <laughs> they got, like, the backwards ambient music, and he's, like, supposed to look hungover or whatever. <sighs> it's a big transformation for Timothée Chalamet. He goes from not talking at all to, like, screaming about turning the space into tissue or whatever. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's talk about the script then. The story is... Look, this is a story broadly as received. That's fine. That's fine. Like Shakespeare uh, adapted it from Holland Shed. Yeah. And then this guy did whatever he did to Shakespeare. Yeah, which was to strip it of all poetry... Um, sort of Games of thrones it. 100%. Whereby all the dialogue is just absolute trash. There are some really wince-inducing moments. The use of profanity as a form of um, sort of stressing points. Classic. Yeah, cheap. And look, people fucking swore in the medieval period, that's fine. But there's a more organic way of doing it than... I don't know. It's also really shouty, again, like... The way that they convey emotion mm. or... It's just through shouting. It's the same as, like, Gladiator, Troy, like, mm. all of these things. Mm. All of these, like, epic, like, non-historical films, you know? Like, you know, it's not like these Hollywood films in, like, the 50s or 60s or whatever, where it's, like, we'll get on to Henry V mm. and how the acting isn't the main thing going on or whatever. It's not all just to, like, service, like, a really shouty aggressive performance or whatever but this this interpretation of the source material seemed to have no subtext no politics or no certainly no discernible politics yeah definitely not um i basically felt nothing from this film like the story didn't tell me anything like whether the scenes are like taking place in london or like on a battlefield there's no like texture if you compare it to another antipodean director's shakespeare mishandling maybe Justin Kurzel, who made Snowtown, his Macbeth adaptation is pretty different to this. That is all about the visuals and sort of trying to marry Shakespeare's language with nature and like lighting. Mm, that's like a proper colour tone poem of a film. That's exactly know? what it is. Yeah, like, this is not that at all. It's extremely staid and there's no tone whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is it's... very much like Game of Thrones. You know, yeah. a, a dragon could have turned up at any point. Yeah, I think yeah, you were yeah, saying. Yeah. You know. Um, I did appreciate one bit of the casting, which was Robert Pattinson. I mean, we're in my house, we have to stand a, a Dauphin, 
Robert Pattinson, I thought was hilarious in a bit of like sort of carry on casting, you know. I mean, his is definitely that's what it was, but at least he brought something to the film that was utterly like dreadful and banal. And then at least he made me laugh when he was talking about the massive balls and tiny cock or whatever, mm. you know. Yeah, he just brings a bit of flavour and character. Right. Where even if. I, I don't know. I thought it was a bit of a ludicrous performance, to be honest. And I am a fan. All the performances sucked, really. Sure. As I said, like... You didn't think Lily Rose Depp killed it? Born to act, that girl. I like the, the guy that played um, the Chief Justice. Out of... I don't know who he is. I think he's in, like, Mission Impossible or something. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Good film. <laughs> yeah. It's serious better than this shit. Yeah. But um, that was just, like, because it was just, like, a standard, like, you know... You're allowed to be beige in the back. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. I don't know what the, the modern versions of these kind of films are, are that are good, though. There's a film about the English Civil War called To Kill a King. It's from, like, 2004. It's quite minor, but I, rem- I remember really enjoying that. It's not a film, but it's similar. Uh, the Last Kingdom, the BBC um, ad- book series mm-hmm. adaptation. I think that's way more successful than just, like you know, exploring, like, character relations. Like, this is meant to be a film <laughs> or, or a story about, you know, about the characters and, like, what they represent mm. like, and how they interact. And it's just also seems... All, it all seems so shallow and... I don't know. Yeah. Just stripped of all meaning and poetry and what's left, like, a few cool fight scenes which, you know, miseducate viewers about what actually happened in those battles so then like it's one virtue is negated (laughs) I had a huge problem with I like Joel Edgerton I think he worked on the script Um, I think he's a pretty solid actor he plays Falstaff yeah Falstaff's a character a fictional character created by William Shakespeare a lot of people say like one of his greatest characters Um, features across a lot of plays like the Merry Wives of Windsor and like the Henry IV ones he doesn't feature in Henry V but he features well into the story of Henry V in this film but instead of being this sort of like roguish everyman who's like a drunkard and both like a tragic and a comic figure, the Chimes of Midnight is all about him and we'll talk about that later. But Joel Edgerton, the fact that the character still exists, but he doesn't do any of that. He's just like some guy who comes through with the like sick battle plan at Ashencourt. I don't know why they bothered to keep him in the thing. No, especially because they don't ramp up the dramatic tension between him and Hal yeah. really anywhere, anywhere near. There's no like betrayal as much as it could be, you know. For sure, it's you know it's just all about Hal's development from being like a waste man to being like a triumphant king who can you know. Mm. Just to jump back quickly yeah. to um, Robert Pattinson's performance then mm. um, and you know the French the Frenchness of it. He's yeah. doing you know. A quite inconsistent, as you said, like a carry on up the Seine or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Um, and I don't know. It just seems like Henry V is like a nationalistic play. I think, right? Right. That that I, I guess that is its one political stance. You know, mm-hmm. especially linked like a monarchical vision of just mm-hmm. of the state and like that form of like legitimating power, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't really do anything with that. This is all just stripped down to caricatures and, you know, like a shocking interpretation of <laughs> these, like, national histories, right? Sure. But the main character wins in the end, and that's kind of the whole thing. Mm. 
like you know when Troy came out like I, don't know, I had to study that shit in school because studying like the Iliad or whatever mm. and I guess it's a very comparable thing because they just don't give a fuck about the text like at all mishandle it like mm. bring characters back to life like kill characters and e- even if these are both like sort of semi-fictionalized like war stories but they're just like bait Hollywood films that... yeah I mean there's a scene where Robert Pattinson's character the Dauphin himself a combination of di- you know different historical figures yeah the different like heirs of the of the French king mm-hmm. He turns up in the woods outside the English camp and, like, basically, like, beheads a little kid, right? It's just, like, pantomime villainy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in such a serious film, it doesn't... Yeah, for sure. The film takes itself extremely seriously. That's another thing. Like, there's no humour in it. At least the Henry V, Laurence Olivier, which is very, very serious and, like, reverential to the words of William Shakespeare, but that is a way more humorous entertaining like crowd pleasing mm. and like multifaceted multi-voiced way to tell that story whereas in this film like every character kind of talks in exactly the same register apart from robert pattinson yeah which is ridiculous yeah but he was definitely my favorite thing about the film yeah for sure it was just like he was on a completely different page to everyone else and like it's a really bad film it's also piece. also a few other things it's really long yeah, it was and far not too in a long. Way. Like films can be long. I mean, know? the Henry ad is long, dude. That's like seven hours of. So, you know, maybe they did a pretty good job of condensing all that long, boring Shakespeare stuff into a. This is my fucking battle. Yeah, come at me, big dog. Ugh. No, I disagree. I disagree because, like, what are, the, what are the essential elements of the story then that they're trying to tell? Like, it's stripped of all the monologues and and all the relationships yeah, and all the relationships. So, what's left? Like the king, the t- yeah, the king, and not an interesting portrait. No, no, like yeah, so a one-dimensional. Doesn't succeed on a historical level. Doesn't so. succeed on like a textual reinterpretive, you know, reinterpreting Shakespeare. Yeah, which is what Chimes at Chimes at Midnight is all about. Yeah. And, as we'll discuss, is way more successful at doing. I, I would say it's one of the worst films of the year. I'd say it's the worst film of the year, but. The souvenir came out this year and I really hope we get a Labour government. We wake up with a Labour government on December the 13th. So that film could be seen for the fossil that it is. But yeah, I really hated The King. I thought it was hot trash. Yeah. I haven't seen Outlaw King. I don't know how they compare, but maybe they're some sort of like diptych. And they, uh, <laughs> the subtleties and the nuances between the two like Netflix directed films. Well, look, if they're going to fuck up English history that badly, God knows how disrespectful their treatment of Scottish history would be. Don't touch Ireland, you motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm just going to add, both The King and The Souvenir are extremely conservative films. Yeah. And The King is more reactionary, but they're both very conservative. I think The King is just like apolitical, you know.
so now we're going to look at what was the first British colour feature film ever made, 1944's adaptation by Laurence Olivier of the play Henry V by William Shakespeare. The history play. <laughs> but it wasn't history in the opening credits. Well, it says history in the opening credits, but I was like, surely it should be history. Yeah, and then they come through, like the Herald comes through with like the revised, like. Yeah, they created it in the yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, it opens with, I guess, and opens and closes with a shot using miniatures of London in 1600 when the play was first put on. And it's a pan from, uh, I guess, from like Southwark, Waterloo area. From the tower. Oh, no, but I guess, where would the camera be? It would be like somewhere in like Elephant Waterloo area, right? And it's like going. Oh right, yeah, it's from the south, like looking north, and it like goes like over the. It's a really cool shot. So you see like the OG Tower Bridge with all the like tenement buildings on it, and yeah. you go around. I mean, London looks tiny. You've got this beautiful William Walton music, mm. great composer, big tunes, and then you pan across to like the two Riverside theatres. You got the the really big one, and then the Globe, which was the slightly smaller one next to it. The camera sort of dwells on the big one, and then like then goes into the globe, which mm. I thought was pretty jokes, ticking a couple of boxes for the for the nerds out there. And then, yeah, yeah. Um, you've got the stage hands, you're in the globe. Yeah, so it like drops through the open ceiling and then that's the main, I guess, framing device mm -hmm. for the rest of the film, like an actual staging of it. Yeah, so all the scenes that take place in London take place at the Globe Theatre. You've got the audience, you've got like canned laughter. Yeah, when they introduce um, Falstaff's name, all there's all like eh, my guy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah they've got the the citizen cane like upward dolly the vertical dolly which i like and yeah it's a really interesting way to do it and yeah. faithful and a cool thing for a film to do and the set designs they use in the globe are crazy they're like illuminated paintings or something mm. right from mm. like these weird like clustered cityscapes with little turrets that are like other characters like at the top of it it's really cool yeah it really like interrogates the experience of theater going in elizabethan <laughs> right like, yeah like, you've got all the people way. coming on to do to pick up their cues because like with shakespeare plays this is another thing they kind of acknowledge the actors only ever had their parts and like the last two words of what was said before they come on or before they say their thing so the shakespeare folios those massive books were the first times that the actual play scripts were like published which yeah. is crazy especially considering like i guess it's like a real like oral tradition though and mm. like like a social thing as well like something you watch rather than like read but there's a scene where they go backstage and like this is like demonstrated where i think this is all really brilliant direction like from olivier it's a really interesting way to do it um the camera is used really well i mean there are characters who are looking directly in the camera when they're like doing their soliloquies or whatever when they're talking to the audience mm. falstaff's pretty much always looking in the camera so is the dog fan actually then when the campaign in france begins we uh leave the globe they might as well have done the Abel Gaunt's like turn on two other projectors, you know. <laughs> and yeah, we leave behind the theatre and everything takes place in like a field with like hundreds of extras. Really impressive battle choreography, I guess. For like, sure. Yeah. Still like quite conservatively and sort of stagily mm. framed, though, especially in terms of the monologues and the... But then it is more expansive than that and there are big moments of like... They do really disregard the like Elizabethan drama stuff for like just full on melodrama, you know, like mm. that's when the score really starts like doing the 1940s like Dan Busters thing, like underscoring all the speeches and stuff. Yeah. So compared to The King, which just seemed like banal and basically pointless, especially because it has no historical value right. um, 
it just has like a vapid nationalism. The nationalism in this is like very pertinent. It's like at the height of the Second World War, yeah. originally dedicated to active service people. That wasn't on my DVD copy or whatever, but maybe yeah, that was... Yeah, I did read, I think, I feel like I read about this. Maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe that was in the bit where they play the national anthem as they would before every film up until like the 80s. That's crazy, yeah. Yeah, very appropriate for this film. Well, exactly, man, because it's meant to be, you know, it's stirring and... Olivier, as a, like a traditional Shakespearean actor, I mean, he did a lot of cool stuff with the direction, but like he and all the actors, some of the supporting characters do more interesting things, but it's just about servicing the language, speaking clearly and like making the poetry like really ring off, which I think is actually probably the main purpose of a lot of this stuff, even beyond the patriotic sort of like keep calm and carry on, even though that only was published in like 2000 and austerity era or whatever. Shout out Owen Hadley. But um, he's good at just like enunciating or whatever, as opposed to Timothée Chalamet, like grunting a bunch of badly written non-Shakespearean dialogue. God, imagine Laurence Olivier reading the script for the king. (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't make it work. Luckily, he didn't have to because he died long before that monstrosity came out. Thank God. Well, he'd still be turning in his grave. Yeah. As I'm sure William Shakespeare is, if he um, had written the plays. I'm just playing, he definitely wrote the plays. <laughs> just sorry, sorry, just one more thing then. I feel like this is maybe most illustrative of the sort of nationalistic overtones of the 44 version, where there's a scene where the William Walton school, which hitherto had been like relatively sort of pastiche, medieval-y, like... But with all the sort of like 1940s glisses and like... Mm, yeah, and then it, the, the fluidity of this just increases tenfold mm. for this interpretation of the Agincourt Carol that plays like in full over like the St. George's flag flapping in the wind and it's just like a really like uh yeah. yeah I understand its function when it was made but if a contemporary filmmaker did that I would be frankly disgusted what if it was satirical I mean I think he could only read that as either satirical or <laughs> like terrifying. Yeah, I don't want to see that. <laughs> yeah, the the Nazi Richard the Third is good. You seen that? No. Was Ian that? McKellen. It was made in the nineties. It's just all like Nazi imagery, but like the the normal dialogue. You know, Fair. it was before Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah, a film that you. I hate that shit. You really don't like. I hate that shit. Whatever. I, I like. I like that one. Man. Fair enough. Yeah. I like Love Fool. What's that? The Cardigan song on the soundtrack. You know. Oh. Wow. That's a big big classic. You'd, you'd know it if you heard it. Well, Henry V. It's, you should watch it, guys. It's pretty interesting as a way to make a film about a play. It was like Ingmar Bergman's The Magic Flute, which has a lot of shots of the audience faces and really takes place at the play. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it is very much so a product of its time, yeah. but I don't think that detracts from it. I haven't seen his uh, Othello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen that. I've seen. <laughs> Fuck.
good one now. Yes, please. <laughs> okay, Orson Welles, 1965. Chimes at midnight. He obviously did a lot of theatre work. This was at a time where he really couldn't get any films finished at all. Um, he got contracted to make two films in Spain, simultaneously an adaptation of Treasure Island wow. and an adaptation of his play Chimes at Midnight. They used exactly the same set. He didn't film a single scene of the uh, Treasure Island adaptation. That's He was just a joker, you know. He, yeah, that's wild. He was nobody. Wait, the same set for Treasure Island and Chimes at Midnight? Yeah. Yeah, the inn. Right, okay. They, um, yeah. He'd done a play called Five Kings before where he played everyone from Richard II to Richard III. This is something that he like basically started doing when he was like at boarding school. Yeah, <laughs> like Rushmore. Yeah. But then he developed that from that, from playing all the kings to playing the character that is in basically all those plays, right? Or, well, obviously not in Richard III or in Henry VI or in Henry V. <laughs> Sorry. No, but he's like a sort of framing device. Uh, and I don't know, as we were discussing for, um, you know, it's something that the 44 Henry V demonstrates that like Elizabethan audiences like had an affinity with this character. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. he's sort of like an everyman. Yeah. And, you know, historical fiction. Right. Yeah. Entry point sort of. So. But most of this film is the timeline of Henry IV, part one and two. Yeah. Well, he uses dialogue, composite dialogue from all the plays. But it basically tells the story of Falstaff and his relationship with Prince Hal. He's played by Keith Baxter. Really brilliant performance. Yeah, really, really, really good. I think he's fantastic. And he played him in the play as well, which was only ever performed in Ireland. Wow. Chimes at Midnight. But then he started working on the film straight after. I mean, he did stage loads of different versions of it, though, as you said. He like, did loads. I mean, he did like the, the classic, like, did like the fascist. Julius Caesar and like the voodoo Macbeth. He also played Othello. Um, Classic. <laughs> the script of this is, I mean, one of the standout yeah. elements. It's, so he uses, he's got Ralph Richardson reading straight from Hollinshead. Yeah. And then the dialogue is all Shakespearean dialogue. And it's yeah. got all the jokes in it. You know, it's got ton of man. Yeah. It's got, I'm going to tell you what I'm really about. John Falstaff, you're about two yards. Or <laughs> and John Gilgood plays Henry the Fourth who even more than Laurence Olivier, I would argue, is like really good at being a traditional Shakespearean actor who just like, you know, enunciating this, these monologues in the, in the palace where it's really cold, you can see his breath coming out and he's just like so serious. Yeah, it's like extremely stately, but also very natural. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like the uh, Shakespearean dialogue is some sort of artifice. It seems um, like real... Yeah. He's playing a real lizard man, you know, like, he's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, um, but then he's got those scenes are contrasted with total tomfoolery, like people getting really drunk in this inn. There's like a robbery scene where yeah. full staff, they dress up as like monks or something. Yeah. Yeah. To, to rob some people on the highway and then Hal robs full staff and makes him chase them off. And there's really jokes music as well in that sequence. Yeah. The music is by uh, this like Italian dude, mm. Angelo Francesco Lavagnino, mm -hmm. and it's like really jokes, like sort of pastiche medieval stuff. I guess um, the Walton soundtrack and the Forty Four version is like way before like the sort of early modern music yeah. movement. 
Um, but they used to do like Vaughan Williams and that used to like reinterpret like English folk songs all the time for like 20th century orchestras and stuff like that. Mm, no, yeah, no, but that's the point. That sorry, when I, like in the 60s you had like the early music movement, which is not just about like the the music as like songs or whatever, oh, yes, but yes. like about like trying to replicate the sense and mood of the music and like move towards like a sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was conveyed like way better in this soundtrack which is really jokes well it's great because that um henry the fourth the the music is all diegetic right Mm. he's like oh tell the instrumentalist to start playing like when he's about to die he's like oh i want music now and there's like you know the heralds at the top of the tower Mm. again invoking like classical or or like medieval manuscript imagery really like the cinematography and like uh the framing, the actual... That's what it's all not, about. Not actually necessarily the camera operation, but just, like, the whole aesthetic yeah. well, is is astonishing. All of Wells' films have sick camera angles in them. Touch you know. of Evil. Yeah. And, you know. Citizen Kane. The Trial, which is the film he made right before this. The Kafka adaptation, yeah. Which is great. Um, also made in Europe. Again, this is real like wilderness years for Wells, but I think arguably this is when he made his masterpiece. Mm. Yeah, so uh, Fernando Ray, who I was familiar, wait, is that his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. Who, um, who like I became familiar with through like these these being well films earlier. Tristana, in the year. Like, he, and, he yeah. crops up, and that was like really jokes. It's like one of the dukes, you know. But he's got like the, really the like real army, the like, real ADR English uh, dubbed voice though. You yeah, know? the whole um, audio of the copy I watched was fucked up. Um, like well, it had famously bad out of Oh, really? Yeah. Well, the film had famously bad sound mixing. Mm. Although I like that because it really, again, like plays up the dialogue. So going from the Gilgood scenes to like mm. mumbling Orson Welles in like really chaotic. Uh, this is the thing. Like when it is like in the pub or like Howl and Falstaff and like Poins or whatever, yeah. like talking, uh, using the Shakespearean dialogue, but it's so informal and organic. Um, and like colloquial and mumbled as you say and I don't know it's just like a crazy synthesis of well it's the, op- it's the opposite of the king because it's a real like heteroglossia or whatever every character has a completely different like manner of speaking and a completely different language as opposed to the king where everyone apart from Robertson Pattinson is exactly the same mm. Orson Welles bodies it yeah, and and uh, yeah, his body is actually quite a central like <laughs> device in it. Like it's a very physical performance. Yeah, when he's on, um, when he's in his armor. Oh my god, it looks like Bowser. Crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's actually Bowser. mad. So the Battle of Shrewsbury. Um, yeah, that, yeah, the Battle of Shrewsbury. Battle of um, You know, when the rightful um, heir to the throne, Henry Percy, fought against the, usurper. you know, the usurper, seemed to be Henry V. Um, but this whole sequence is astonishing. It's like a Culloden. Right, okay. I was going to liken it to like Seven Samurai or something like that, but the editing is just bent. Yeah, for sure. This mad battle scene going along and just Wells running around in this, like, it looks bizarre. It's so strange and like really iconic, you know? Yeah. This I mean... is the imagery they drew on for quite an impressionistic poster for it. Mm. But like where he's like a larger than life figure and like his breastplate is like the whole thing like he's like <laughs> it's such a crazy image he's yeah it's brilliant i mean him they never had armor like that in the 15th century or whatever i doubt i don't know who's to say <laughs> I don't know. but um it's very good representation of like the fog of war and it's like a super geometrical 
way of editing, right? Mm. You know, it's all about the shapes and like the chaos. We get to Falstaff passed out and then after that he's like carrying away the body of Henry Percy being like, so am I going to be a duke or a earl? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know. This is after Prince Hal has k- killed Henry yeah. Percy. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and I guess, so the story is after that, then we move into like Henry the Fourth part two, which is a far more somber, sad, like if the first half is a comedy, then this is way more tragic mm. and like sad. Not for Hal because he's about to be the king. Mm. I mean, his dad dies, but he's obviously really happy about that. But it's about the alienation of full staff and like that. Yeah, the betrayal. I mean, I don't necessarily you don't necessarily get the sense that like Hal ever respected full staff. I mean, the first thing he does is like do the robbery prank. On They're him. taking the piss out of him like the whole film. Yeah, and that's what that's what's really sad about it is the yeah. the rejection. You know, I mean, he's he was he's way older than these other characters at the time. By the way, like he's he like he's an old fat man with a big bushy beard and blah, blah, blah. like yeah. you know, and they're all like. It's like, what is the prince doing hanging out with this guy, like, you know? Mugging him off, yeah. You wouldn't get, like, Prince Harry hanging out with, like, John McCreerick every day or whatever, you know? The, like, racing guy or whatever, if they were, like, a famous friendship or whatever. Who knows who these people are hanging out with? You wouldn't get, like, Prince Andrew hanging out with, like, Jeffrey (laughs) Epstein. Yeah. The second half of the film is about Hal becoming the king and betraying. Oh, my God. The scene when... Falstaff comes to him during the coronation. He interrupts his coronation. Yeah, he's like, my dude. So brutal. Heartbreaking stuff. Yeah, it really is. I don't even care about earls and dukes and stuff like that, but this, I kind of get. Yeah. This one specific instance. Yeah, of course, because it transcends like um, their their rank or whatever, and you know, because like it's about friendship and like these like, you know, he does betray him, you know, and. Or betrays his memory, or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah, for sure. Because considering he was, they were together every day, it was a massive part of his life. Um, the other side of the wind, Wells' last masterpiece, which came out last year, um, does follow some of it. Follows a kind of similar structure to this, although there's a way bigger element of like sexual jealousy in that. But Orson Welles' film director character is betrayed by the star of his film, played by this guy Bob Random, who's just like a hunky like. Stu- right. stupid young man but because he's the film director he has the upper hand and he wants to like completely destroy his life so he has all these mannequins of him that he's just like having people shoot and stuff like that but the relationship oh, really need to watch it, man. is so sick it's so sick best film of the 21st century maybe I don't know I love Orson Welles <laughs> not the best film of the year though <laughs> best film of last year last year um, <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 was it actually a whole year ago did yeah that? it came out like this weekend last year pretty much you still haven't watched this fucking shocking man honestly no I'm, joking. I'm just playing no I mean I should watch it I we'll should do... probably watch Citizen Kane as well yeah you should <laughs> but you've seen The Stranger man That's yeah I've seen like you know <laughs> you've seen It's All True I've seen, seen too much Johnson episode. yeah right yeah I've seen The Simpsons shit then you've seen Citizen Kane essentially you still wouldn't I haven't seen Cape Fear either but that's not very good <laughs> the rakes <laughs> the rakes bit in Cape Fear isn't as good <laughs> So it actually happening. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, speaking of The Other Side of the Wind, I want to read out a bit from this. Cinema One, a great, great publishing series that was part done by the BFI in the 70s, but you find these in charity shops all the time. Yeah. Issue number 19. Yeah, the Took their time, didn't they? Yeah, they got around to like Ruben Mamoulian before they did Orson Welles. <laughs> so I don't know. But um, like, he wasn't popular, though. People. Yeah. This is the point, is that in the 60s and 70s, he was a fucking joke. When do you think he was sort of rehabilitated? 
in like after he died like apart from like cinephiles and like the french like people thought he was an absolute joke you know his last film was like he's doing all those like those champagne adverts that people like who don't watch his films like think oh yeah awesome Wells legend love this shit or whatever but like superman transformers that's his last he played his last role i love orson wells unashamedly but yeah this book was written by joseph mcbride who's actually in the other side of the wind because he was one of these sort of like academics california academics who really fucked with him and i think in the 60s 70s if you were like a young man and you were like really inspired by orson wells you could easily reach out to him and then he would go like live on your sofa for six months and like eat all your food and stuff like that literally it happened with bogdanovich happened with this guy but He's the goat, man. If Neil Young wanted to come and sleep on like the sofa you're sitting on for six months, I'd be like, hell yeah, dude. You want to smoke my weed? Hell yeah. It's fine. He's the goat. And he was still doing great work, even if he was drunk all the time and like a total mess, you know. In this study, um, his chapter on Chimes at Midnight is really interesting. It's really getting to the heart of the story Wells is trying to tell and how he felt about false stuff. So if, if you allowed me, I'm going to read the paragraph. Yeah, please do, man. Yeah. I'm going to read a paragraph and a half then. How Give about the that? page reference oh, as well. It. Okay, there's page 154. Publisher. Secker and Warburg. And this book cost £1 and 5 pence when it was initially published. Anyway, if you want to borrow it. That's like over 400 pennies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck. If we can call Chimes at Midnight the tragedy of Falstaff, and we can, even though he makes moral decisions only by instinct, his tragedy perhaps more in the Aristotelian than in the Shakespearean sense of the term. I.e. it's not about like a fatal flaw. Wells' description of Falstaff is profound. What is difficult about Falstaff? I believe he was the greatest of a good man. What is that? I'm being awesome, Wells. The most completely good man in all drama. His faults are so small and he makes tremendous jokes out of little faults. But his goodness is like bread, like wine. And that is why I lost the com- comedy. The more I played it, the more I felt that I was playing Shakespeare's good, pure man. We do not see in Falstaff an essentially noble man of extraordinary gifts who destroys himself through a grave flaw in his nature, which is also the source of his nobility. We see in him something rather more subtle and less absolute, a man of extraordinary gifts which destroy him because he fails to acknowledge their irreconcilable conflict with the nature of the world. His moral blindness, which is to say his childlike candour, an attribute he is sometimes apt to use as a ploy, is his only flaw. Much as Othello was blind to the existence of the kind of power Iago possessed, Falstaff is blind to the possibility that Hal could reject his gift of absolute love. A.C. Bradley remarks of Othello that we share his triumphant scorn for the fetters of the flesh and the littleness of all the lives that must survive him. Falstaff, then, we can say, has a triumphant acceptance of the absoluteness of the flesh and a spontaneous respect for all the lives around him. I just think that's even better than anything William Shakespeare ever wrote about. (laughs) But I think it's really, you know, the character of Falstaff is ridiculous, but he's also like, you're watching a filmmaker who's so inside the role. Mm. I mean, they were both bad Dionysian brats. Exactly, you know? man. You know, it's that's such, the... it's perfect, you know, but you're not, do you like Falstaff? I mean, he's a fraud and like an idiot and like a robber and dishonest, but I don't like the lizards either, you know. But... Wells for whatever reason, really does get to the essence of the character and he extracts a huge amount of pathos out of that mm. and that makes for like a, re- a really affecting film. You know, you used the word heartbreaking earlier. Yeah. I would, you know, 
It's like the Irishman, man. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. very similar it, to the it Irish is, man. It is. It is. Although it doesn't start with Orson Welles's face superimposed into a, a baby or something. Um, but no, it, it is. It's about you know. It's about aging and death. The representation of his death. He doesn't even get like a last line. You just see his like massive coffin. It's actually extremely savage. But it's a beautiful film. Like the, again, the on an aesthetic level, it's yeah, just central. It's astonishing. Man. Sick framing, not very good sound mixing, but I guess that's the point. Our discussion of this film, I hope it hasn't sounded like anything other than a celebration, because like it's. I have nothing bad to say about this film, and the like sort of lower budget things about it only serve to make like the magnificence of the artistic project all the more impressive, considering this film was made for like half a million dollars or something like that you know i was trying to find the budget for the king i couldn't find the, i couldn't find the data but i mean suffice to say it was obviously you know probably over like 100 mil or something like yeah and crazy. i don't think anyone had that hard of a time artistically with like the development of the ideas no they obviously weren't preoccupied with in that. the edit suite they weren't like oh fuck we really gotta like convey this shit you know? honestly if you're listening to this please watch times at midnight if you watch the king i hope you agree with us you know yeah. and i hope if you didn't like let's talk about it because i really want to know what is like likable about this yeah i don't know maybe i'm misread like i was fucking bored and i was you know as someone who's you know a student of history i was a uh, fucking offended as well i was offended as a student of english and yeah as the king i watched it twice classic Netflix shit, I couldn't stop looking at my phone for the first viewing, you know, because there was nothing going on. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh, I should have been looking at Twitter instead. I would have get, <laughs> learned a lot more. Yeah. But that's what most Netflix films, arguably, the purpose they're maybe trying to serve, you know. Yeah, and um, I mean, by the time you're listening to this, you'll probably have watched The Irishman on Netflix. <laughs> so, Next episode. Know, slightly. <laughs> We'll have something different to say. Hopefully you'll have seen it in the just, cinema. Just in terms of summing up quickly then, um, maybe a final word on, on Henry V from 44 as well. I th- okay, I thought well, that was really creative and an interesting way to treat the text. Yeah, I think that's definitely the key. And Olivier as a director really had a lot of cool ideas. I mean, the I- on an ideas thing, the ideas of Orson Welles are like staggering and like really like taking on Shakespeare, like the most iconic writer of all time and like actually developing it and like responding to it in an interesting way the mm. king is a total void of a film i would also spotlight the um the bbc hollow crown where they did the whole henry ad i think they did yes. richard the second to richard the third on tv about eight years ago and that was pretty good it's pretty yeah 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 awesome. loads of people who's in that like dave tennant ben, ben come and and oh yeah he played uh, Richard III didn't yeah, he and, uh, whole slew of people you know yeah and that, that's that, like that, that is a solid adaptation very like um, you know uh, Warfall-esque yeah textual yeah atmospheric though I had a lot more atmosphere than the king mm, just like I'm throwing my hands up like I just I haven't seen um, my own private Idaho in a long time but you worked at a screening of that recently right and that's also got like airhead handsome young men playing these roles mm. I like Keanu a lot more than I like Timothy though you know. I just think yeah The King it's not timely it literally has nothing to commend it whereas the 1944 one and this and Chimes at Midnight we can value them beyond like being films for 
interrogating the text in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not a Shakespeare film, right? I don't think it's going to make anyone want to read or watch the play, though. What? Sorry, I was just going to say, it's not a Shakespeare film in the way those ones are, mm. right? An adaptation or a treatment of Shakespeare. But then it's also not interrogating the actual historical record as well. So it's like sitting somewhere in between in a sort of knuckly vacuum of shit. It's like Troy. Well, Troy's better because it's got Brad Pitt in it. Because it's got all pats in it, I'm going to give it two bags of popcorn. I'm looking forward to... I'll give it no pop, no bags of popcorn and one piece of the one true cross, which is to say, bit of like a fucking twig on the road. Out of Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't the true cross, didn't they say that like after the first crusade the amount of pieces of the true cross they had in britain were enough for like 10 trees or something like that like <laughs> enough to you know yeah <laughs> Sorry. Go there? enough to crucify god himself <laughs> Sticking with us all the way to the end of the uh, very thorough discussion of 100 years of the Henry Adon film, or about 75 years of the Henry Adon film. Yeah, if you're a big fan of Kenneth Branagh, by the way, sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) But are there any films that aren't worth a whole thematic? Well, maybe they are, but we're not capable of doing a whole hour thematic discussion. I think this is going to be a subject of full hour thematic discussion at some point because this is a priest film hell yeah yeah all right so at my local cineworld you're usually just going to see the normal shit there they usually play like three or four bollywood films every night Mm -hmm. uh or like you know hindi language films not necessarily bollywood but they were playing this polish film called corpus christi caught my attention i was interested yeah it's interesting with these polish films because they seem to often do a nationwide simultaneous release where they have one screening and you often see it in the top 10. Well, the whole Polish community is going to see the show. Everyone in the cinema, apart from me, was Polish or, yeah. ha- or half Polish. I was slightly worried, actually. I knew it was subtitled because I checked when we booked it, but then the first trailer that came on was for a Polish film that didn't have subtitles. And I was like, like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and like, it looked really jokes and people were like, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, Fuck, is this actually gonna have stuff? Anyway, it did. Corpus Christi. It's like a young Polish director. I think his name's Jan Kamata. Okay, so this film's about like a young offender in like a criminal institution in Warsaw. 21st century Warsaw. Yeah, yeah, like modern Warsaw. We don't know what he's in there for. We just know he's like a bit of a ruffian, basically. And like while he's in there, like he becomes like a sort of like altar boy like for the like uh, church services it's just like one of his chores that he has to do but I think the idea is that like it's something that like he does actually to a certain extent find some solace or catharsis in you know Poland is like a deeply Christian country and then he goes out on parole Um, he's like posted for like a sawmill like sort of like rehabilitation like job in like a really like remote like village proper like shadows of forgotten ancestors shit Mm. like he's like out there like really rural Mm. and um 
yeah, basically. Does he, he write a diary? No, he doesn't. But he is know, a country priest. He is. He does become a country priest illicitly. He steals like a you know the vestments and uh, he like goes to church, and then he meets like a girl like in the church, mm. and then he like tells her he's a priest and then he basically runs with it and that's what the film's about him ministering to this like small community who've um, experienced like a sort of collective trauma where a bunch of like the kids in the community or like you know teenagers or whatever like died in like a car accident Um, so all the old there's like loads of like bereaved old people like middle aged people Mm -hmm. and um, obviously he's like a kid basically and um yeah, I think it's like a really interesting film, you know, because he's meant to be like a sort of ratchet dude, and there are these really. Does he have nefarious scenes. intentions? Uh, no, no, he's mm. just like he doesn't want to work at the sawmill. Like he wants to, he wants to be a priest. Like when he's in prison, he says to like his priest, like sort of mentor guy, um, Father Tomas. He says, uh, "Can I? Are you sure I can't become a priest?" And he's like, "No, you've got a criminal record. You can't do it." So then, when he goes to the this community, he realized like the priest is like ill like he's an alcoholic like he's sort of out of action and he goes yeah i'm here i've been sent from you know warsaw i'm father tomash i'm here to you know minister and then like that's what the film's about like him like trying to like heal the trauma in this community while also confronting his own past you know and his own like future he can't be a priest but he wants to be and like he's trying to like and he can it's, still it's, have like, communion with God even if he doesn't have communion with like yeah, the catechism yeah. of the Yeah, there's church. this whole thing. Like it's all about like <laughs> they're in church and like he does a homily like first, like yeah. a speech. Yeah. Like a um and then he's like That's it, go outside and pray yeah, instead. Great. Like <laughs> I would have loved that so much if my priest had ever <laughs> said that. Um it's is like it, God is everywhere, go outside. Is know? it like you watch Fleabag? as well recently right I'd say it's different insofar as like there's clearly a different theological tradition in Poland yeah. it's also different insofar as like he is like he is la- LARPing as a priest and like yeah. that is um, what's his name Andrew Scott good actor but it, it is like a moral question like yeah. there is like a moral like ethical question in it but I feel like I've really been rambling about this no it sounds like, really good like man really, so thought... one thing I want to say like obviously he's meant to be like a sort of ratchet like Warsaw like roadman basically so like there are these scenes where he's like in the like rectory yard like fixing a motorbike Mm. listening to some like shitty like techno and like wearing a tracksuit and like you can see the church like on the hill in the background and like he's like doing some like mad like Slavic dancing and like it's actually like really guys please watch this film Corpus Christi it's a very impactful film I think it was really good also like it's a tragic film has a lot of you know humour mainly through this ironic juxtaposition but please check it out yeah it sounds sick I don't really know that much about certainly not about contemporary Polish cinema mm. well I know I made a glib remark about their release strategies but I do think that is no, 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 no. No, when I was thinking about it though, like, I know, like, they play these, like, Hindi yeah. films yeah. in the cinema, and that is a cash grab. They know, like, this is a demographic. And as you say, they do this, like, roll out where they're like, okay, we'll do it for one night. I could have gone to see, we could have gone to see Finchley. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, usually these, usually these films shit, look a bit more like a Rise of the Foot Soldier. Yeah, right? so the one before was a biography. Uh, like, two weeks before was the first time I noticed that they were doing this in my cinema. Yeah. 
and it was a bi biopic of Jan Piłsudski. That um, he was like a a colonel or whatever, like in the you know like a national like army figure. Yeah, exactly. Rise of <laughs> rise of a foot soldier. Yeah. yeah. But um, then this was like I thought a really like interesting sensitive film. Like one of Shan's favorite films is Calvary. Yeah. And I think it bears comparison to that. We we're gonna do the priest episode. Yeah. We just need to meet a priest that we can get on the show. We can yeah. talk about Leon Moran. That's all, yeah. That's all, I think that's all I have to say about it really. But again, Corpus Christi. Please check it out if you're interested. I really want to see it. I'm just gonna shout out Man of Marvel because that film's amazing and Polish. Thanks for listening to Film Grades, folks. Thanks for sticking with us. I've really enjoyed doing this episode. Hope you have too, Sam. Yeah, for sure, man. I don't know, when we deal with like films of a historical subject matter, this is something I'm really interested in mm. and like I know it's like it's not constructive to be like that's anachronistic, yeah. right? Because like you could say that about like all the shit that we see on, on film, right? I just think there are levels to doing this shit and the king was so unsuccessful in doing it and like I thought they shot on like literary history more than they shout on like yeah, factual they, history or whatever yeah i mean they i guess they did both they were just shitting all over the place <laughs> <laughs> um our next episode we're going to talk about modern films that have come out in the last month or so that give us a different perspectives on america yeah so we're going to talk about the irishman we're going to talk about todd phillips's joker and we're going to talk about I don't know what Dirty Rat directed Mr. America, but I know that uh, Tim and Greg hate him. <laughs> Review us on iTunes, that's what they say. Yeah, yeah, please, if you do listen, you know, follow, subscribe, all that shit, thumbs up, yeah. all that shit, you know, We're tell your friends. Yeah. We're going to keep doing it. Retweet. Yeah, whether you like it or not. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. Uh, keep watching the skies. Lots of love. Thanks for listening. Vote Labour. Labour.